So many of us work or have worked in organizations that we wanted to be better, more purposeful, mission-driven, and social impact-oriented. Have you ever wondered if there's a way to transform your organization from the inside, that you could make it into an organization that drives more social good in the world? Well, today's guest trains business leaders around the globe to do just that, and we'll discuss the ways you can do the same within your organization. Welcome to the Be Social Change podcast, your go-to resource for weekly personal and professional development to help you build a successful social impact career. I'm Marco Salazar. And I'm Jen Lashansky, and we're the team behind Be Social Change. Over the past decade, we've helped tens of thousands of professionals and entrepreneurs grow their social impact careers, and we're excited to help you do the same. In the podcast, you'll learn new skills and strategies from inspiring social impact leaders who have built careers at socially conscious companies, innovative nonprofits, and within government. We're so happy you found this podcast and look forward to helping you build a meaningful, fulfilling, and successful social impact career. Let's get into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first Be Social Change podcast episode. I'm so excited to be doing this with you, Jen. Marcos, this is our first episode. We've been talking about this, and now it's so exciting that we get to share with the whole world some of our favorite people and conversations that we've gotten to have. I'm super excited to have Eli Malinsky as our first guest. I've known Eli for over a decade, way at the beginning of the social impact space in New York City, right when Be Social Change was a meetup and he was just about to start the Center for Social Innovation. And Eli has been an unbelievable partner and advocate in the social impact space. I think about anybody who knows Be Social Change from our New York City days knows the Center for Social Innovation. It's where we hosted every single workshop. And it was a mutual partnership. There was such benefit to each group. And so when you find a partner like that, it's a rare but wonderful thing. And now Eli is the deputy director at the Aspen Institute, and he also serves as the director of Aspen's First Movers Fellowship, their flagship leadership development program for change makers inside of large companies. And in this episode, we get into the topic of entrepreneurship, which is not the same as entrepreneurship, but instead it's the art of transforming businesses and driving change as an employee. He also shares how to figure out where the levers are of change so that you can make the greatest impact at any organization. We get into examples of successful entrepreneurs in major organizations, how everyone can use social capital to advance their careers and organizational purposes, partnerships, and the major skills every entrepreneur needs to develop in order to be successful. Let's dive in, Jen. Hey, Eli, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Marcos. I'm happy to be here. I'm really excited to talk to you today because we've known each other for over a decade. We first met at the beginning stages of the New York social impact space. You were leading a new branch at the Center for Social Innovation. Be Social Change was in its infancy, was a meetup that eventually became what it is today. So it's going to be really fun to, one, catch up, hear how you feel the social impact sector has evolved over the past decade. But to get started, I'd love to just hear a little bit more about the work that you're currently doing. Great. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I work for an organization called the Aspen Institute. It's a nonprofit organization. Lots of people have heard of it, but nobody's quite perfectly sure what it does. And it's, it does a lot of different things, but really at its heart, it's a convener. It brings leaders together in diverse fields to really try to cultivate values-based leadership and belief that values-based leaders are what we need on a road to a more harmonious society. And so inside the Aspen Institute, I work in the business and society program. So we're the part of the organization that deals with large companies. And our mission is to align corporate decision-making with the long-term health of society. 
And I'm the deputy director of that program. So I help to oversee the program and operations and strategy of this dozen person shop. And I'm also the director of a First Movers Fellowship, which is a fellowship for corporate social entrepreneurs. So change agents inside of these large companies who are trying to link business success to real social impact. Can you describe Eli for a moment? Because we talk a lot about entrepreneurship and probably spend less time talking about entrepreneurship. Can you just share a little bit more about what entrepreneurship looks like? It's a very accurate and inelegant term. Nobody loves the language of entrepreneurship. It doesn't roll perfectly off the tongue, but much as an entrepreneur drives change outside of by creating their own organization, the idea of an entrepreneur is a change agent inside of an existing institution. So they could be nonprofit, private, public sector, but the idea is that this is somebody who is trying to advance an innovation, a new way of doing things inside of an existing organization of some kind. It's a great model to look at. What drew you to the Aspen Institute, Eli? How'd you get there? I had worked for a long time with social entrepreneurs, and I love that work, and we'll have a chance to talk a little bit about it today. But I was just started to get really curious about other levers of impact, having spent about a decade working with startup social enterprises and nonprofits. I was really curious about what government and corporate and philanthropy could do. And so I tried to focus in on some of these others, what I was calling like levers of social change. And the truth is, I don't have tremendous love for the business world. I don't didn't grow up really idolizing business professionals. I didn't imagine myself to be a business person. But I recognize the reach and the resources of the corporate sector. And I just felt like if we could move a huge company just a quarter of a degree, the impact would be really significant. So for me, it was partly almost like an intellectual decision more than a passion-based one, which was if I really want to move the needle on some big issues, it feels to me like the corporate sector is a good place. And that tied in to where I was strong, which is program design and facilitation and community engagement. So it was a good match. And that was almost seven years ago now. Thanks for asking that question, Jen, because one of the things that we think about when you're thinking about something external with an entrepreneur versus an intrapreneur is that there's probably some basic skill sets that each of them have and need in order to make a, an impact. But what are some of the skill sets that you feel that an entrepreneur needs as they're working within an organization that it could be big, has its own bureaucracy and politics, et cetera? It's a good question. There certainly are similarities like the going lines. You need to be innovative. You need to be creative. You need to be tenacious. Those things I think are true of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs. Though entrepreneurs probably rarely feel that they have the resources they need to do what they want, entrepreneurs really have their hands tied a lot more. They're subject to more external control that determines what they can and cannot do. They don't have a free hand in accessing resources. They're limited to where they can get resources. There's a culture in which they operate that they don't have the opportunity just to change or transform. So they have to do a lot of navigation of culture and bureaucratic systems that entrepreneurs don't. And, and I don't want to suggest for a second that entrepreneurs have it easy. It's awful hard, hard work. But entrepreneurs, it's just the complexion is just a little bit more out of their control, which requires a bit more kind of political navigation than I think is necessary for most entrepreneurs. Are there successful examples that stand out to you of entrepreneurs either that you've worked with or have been through the programming that you've done with the Aspen Institute that you can speak to? 
Yeah, there are a really wide variety of examples. And we work with all sorts of large companies from Facebook, LinkedIn, and Google to Nike and Toyota and Johnson and Johnson. The folks that we've worked with have led changes in manufacturing processes that have had real impacts on, let's say, environmental footprint of apparel manufacturing, others who've worked on conditions in warehouses and in factory work and providing greater benefits and healthier work conditions for frontline workers. There are others who have worked in technology to make technology safer for children, reduce instances of bullying, address the issues of misinformation. So there's a pretty wide variety of impact stories that these fellows have driven. Generally, in every class of 20 for this particular fellowship that we run, we'll see that five of these fellows have really taken their project and accomplished something very significant. 10 have stumbled through and made some progress and five have gotten turned around. A very typical program works really well for some in terms of getting them where they need to go. Doesn't always get every project off the ground, but what's universal are the impacts on the individual. While I can tell you different stories of projects that have accomplished something quite significant, the impacts on the individual and their sense of leadership and vision and purpose has been uniformly positive. And so the fellows accomplish significant things in the year, but it's really now that I look at our alumni network of hundreds of these corporate change agents and what they've accomplished in the year since and how they're leading teams in a kind of values-based way, which is for me, most impactful yeah, elements of the work. What are the things that you end up teaching them or they're exposed to during the program to get clarity on that vision, to get clarity on their purpose? Are they coming in with not feeling that they have that sense and the program is helping to clarify that? So the program does a couple of things. So one thing it does is it provides a lot of practical benefits and skills. So how do I navigate my corporate ecosystem, insights from behavioral economics and organizational change? How do I build the business case for this work? How do I do effective storytelling or understand the importance of small wins, effective listening? So we have modules that are content modules that help to provide you with the skills and capacities that you need to drive change inside of a large, often bureaucratic organization. But in addition to skills and capacities, what people really need is courage and conviction. And that comes through the Aspen Institute's methodology, which I think is work familiar to be social change, which is also about connecting to community and like-minded others and creating space for reflection. And so in addition to a curriculum, part of our program design includes significant downtime, reflection, being in nature. We read poetry, we do journaling, we spend meaningful time together as a group, storytelling, walking in nature. The point is, as we all know, the intensity of the world just keeps us on a bit of a treadmill. So how do we create space for people to step off for a moment, reflect, and draw some energy from other people who are like-minded, but also from a kind of a deep reserve inside yourself that isn't always apparent when you're consumed with just surviving from day to day or just dealing with the torrents of stuff day to day. So a lot of this is about helping people tap into their own innate sense of purpose and unlocking that to provide the energy for what is just very difficult, uphill, challenging work. And so building that reservoir is what we consider to be kind of the most essential achievement of the program. Yela, I'm trying not to jump out of my chair here because I'm overwhelmingly excited that you're talking about a type of leadership that we don't have a whole lot of successful examples of. 
a leadership that is about almost like a regenerative quality. It has a regenerative quality, whether it's the values or whether it's the energy that we bring into the leadership. So that reservoir that you're talking about is brilliant and so exciting. And I think it's something that we see some of, like a growing consciousness of, especially in more of the corporate or business sectors where leaders will go out on retreats and you have people who are trying to exemplify some type of balance in their lives. But it's been something that's been primarily overlooked in social impact, right? The idea that if you're doing good, it means that you have to do as much as you possibly can. And so we don't often integrate conversations around the type of regenerative values-based leadership where people are taking time to really have a conversation with themselves, with nature, with their local communities. This is me just saying, I love what you're saying. <laughs> and, yeah. it also, and it also reminds me just how we think about be social change in many ways. And I think sometimes we focus so much on the change aspect and not enough on the social, but more importantly on that B piece that you're talking about. And if that B that everything that you both and Jen described isn't strong, isn't clear, isn't relaxed, and you don't have time to just be, the social and the change cannot fulfill itself to its fullest potential. Yeah, I think it's hard to, it's hard to do any work. It's hard to do mission-driven work, especially if you don't have a supportive community around you. And these tend to be jobs that are either very demanding from a capacity perspective, often under-resourced, which makes your work difficult or underpaid, which makes your life difficult. And I think that need of kind of healing and self-care and self-attention is, I agree, sometimes too often overlooked in the nonprofit or social change spaces and deserves, deserves significant attention. It is a necessary fuel or complement to the substance of the work, which really can't be achieved unless you've got unless you've got some health and balance in your life, for sure. 100%. Yeah. Do, you, and I, do you see this as part of the evolution of the social impact space as this dawning awareness? Or how else have you seen the social impact space evolve? It's an interesting question in that it's a little hard for me to disentangle my own journey through the space from what the space itself has become. Like, I feel, I think what I can say with reasonable certainty is that I was there for the dawn of social entrepreneurship and social innovation in the kind of language and framing that started to come out in the, let's say, early 2000s. And there was just like a ton of energy. I think where I struggled and where I hope there's some evolution, and I think there is some evolution, is at the time there was so much interest in social entrepreneurship and social innovation that it was often thought, and especially social enterprise, oh, wait, there's profit-driven or revenue-driving enterprises that can achieve social impact. And it was thought a little simplistically with, I think, there's like a VC Silicon Valley model that was grafted onto the social change pace. So it was like, great, we'll invest money in these social, and they'll grow their organizations, they'll achieve a ton of impact. And then there were some like exemplars, Tom Shoes, or like certain where it was just, wow, look, these little enterprises, and they've got social good and they, they can really become these powerful entities. And I felt at the time that energy was a little bit misplaced and missing some of the point. And I think I feel that more now. So I hope it's moved a little bit away from, let's start a thousand embers of these individual enterprises that will operate in the marketplace to achieve impact from a recognition that what we need are more coordinated and systemic efforts and a bit less of a kind of a like a fetishization of the market as the end-all be-all solution. And I work in the corporate sector, so the market's really important to us. 
But I think that the notion that as long as we can move social change into the market, we'll really unlock the power of the market and achieve impact. I think that was misplaced. And uh, I'm hoping that the evolution is a little bit more around coordinated and systemic efforts aimed more at some of the roots of the challenges, which really requires philanthropy to be at the table in order to make it work as well. And more of a coordinated, that can't be achieved by individual enterprises. And I'm definitely of the opinion, like more is better. I'm not saying one and not the other, but I think if you fail to do that coordinated systems oriented, roots focused, often philanthropically supported work, then, then the change that we really need is going to be too elusive. The other thing I want to say, which is I think the most exciting dimension of evolution of the social impact space in the world, at least the Western world more broadly, has been the push around inclusion and diversity and equity in the past several years, because that is allowing us to do at least two things. One is design solutions with the end person around the table, rather than have a group of privileged folks designing solutions for underprivileged or marginalized communities, making sure that those communities have a seat at the table of solutions design, I think is absolutely a critical and necessary step forward. And the other is just increasing diversity of thought that comes with bringing diverse demographics around some of these challenges. The halls of power were obviously traditionally very white and male and still are, but seeing, but in the philanthropy space, the nonprofit space and the corporate space and the public sector, seeing more diversity, I think is probably the most meaningful evolution. And I think we're just scratching the surface of what that enhanced diversity will unlock from a, from an impact perspective. Eli, everything that you're saying resonates so deeply and it's very fundamental to what it is that we try to do when we bring groups of people together. So I'm sitting here again, resisting the urge to like clap. Go go ahead and clap. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) It's it's clear that you have such depth of understanding both of the social impact space as well as a vision for what what moves forward. And so I'd love to jump into your journey and just hear a little bit more about your own social impact career. Unless, Marcos, you want to jump in with anything else. Yeah, I think what was interesting about you remind me of a conversation we had when you were thinking about taking this job at the Aspen Institute. And when you think about the evolution of the social impact space, and then you being the executive director and really starting and growing the Center for Social Innovation in New York City, and really being an entrepreneur in that sense, and then having to transition to really much an entrepreneur. How was that transition for you? And what were some of the things that you started to recognize that you needed to develop, some of the challenges that you had as you started going internally into an organization? In some ways, the experience of being an entrepreneur, my life story is not done yet, but at this stage, looking at it, the entrepreneur part was the outlier. And so in some ways, it wasn't tremendously foreign for me to go to the Aspen Institute. One of the things I discovered being behind the Center for Social Innovation was, and I loved it. We accomplished something really meaningful. It was very gratifying, very proud of the work that we did. And I didn't love being an executive director. I love being a program person. And obviously part of this podcast is to talk a little bit about career experiences and recognizing that others have questions about their own careers and trajectories. And one thing that was hard for me to acknowledge or reconcile, or at least if not hard, at least required me to think about was we have a vision that the point of our careers and our lives is to keep going up and up and up and get to the top of some kind of a triangle, no matter where we are. And so it was very unusual for me to get to the kind of top of my triangle and say, I think I liked it better one floor down. Like that kind of caused a bit of a 
it caused reflection and uncertainty. And what does that mean about me? And I'm less worthwhile. And what about these other people? It caused a lot of indecision and uncertainties. So that was just like an interesting dynamic in terms of my own career evolution. And I'm very reconciled to that. I have, it was much more external narratives, I think, that caused me moments of doubt or uncertainty. But really, when I listened to myself, I knew. I knew that I knew where I worked best and where I was at my happiest, but the transition did require me to, if you can believe it, act a little bit more professional and work inside of a culture and an organization. I'm lucky to have a great boss and a team where I really can bring my whole self to work and I don't have to, it's not a very stuffy place where I have to navigate layers and layers of bureaucracy, but it does, it did require some changes and some it did require some changes that I had to adapt to. I bet. And I, I have to ask too, because that external narrative part and the pressure that we feel like externally around our career can be really overwhelming at times. And so I'm curious if you have any advice for anybody who's feeling that external pressure to keep climbing the pyramid or to go in a specific direction because of what they're hearing externally. Any advice that you'd give based on your own experience of how to recenter inwardly? I'm, I'm, I hope in some ways my story may be instructive for other people, but I'm always hesitant to give advice because I had the dynamics of my life and the, the responsibilities I had and the influences I had were unique to me as they are to each of your listeners. And I don't pretend for a moment to really be able to capably put myself in, some, in someone else's shoes. I will, the practical advice I would offer is I took on a practice of journaling for a little while where that was how I like to process my thoughts and my thinking. Some people do that through conversation, other through art, others through meditation or any number of mechanisms. And for me, it was really a kind of a practice of reading and writing and reflect, kind of interrogating some of those thoughts and also reflecting on where I was most satisfied and happy and trying to distill what are the elements of past experiences that were most satisfying for me? And could I surface those? And as I did, and I started to interrogate them or at least inspect them, it turned out that they had to do much more with a sense of achievement and a sense of challenge and reward and day-to-day -day happiness. The people I was working with, everything from my commute to my manager to the dynamism of the work and the way I engaged with other people, and I think that process helped me understand that the things I was looking for at work and in life weren't necessarily, didn't necessarily coexist with the narrative of what, say, 10 years prior, I assumed I would need or want. Awesome. And getting back to what you just shared in terms of those things that in their past experiences that really led you to where you're at, can you take a little bit of a step back? And what is that career trajectory? I know that you mentioned that for a lot... In a lot of times people don't necessarily have a particular plan in terms of what their career is going to look like. Where did you feel like, what were some of those formative experiences and skills that you learned that really led you to where you're at? So I'll try and I'll do a, a fairly condensed version. I was someone who had absolutely no idea what they wanted to do when they were older. And I really always envied those who knew exactly what they wanted, whether they were going to, they were going to be a violinist or a lawyer I just didn't have that. I never knew what I wanted. I was intellectually engaged and curious about the world and learning. I wasn't aloof, but I didn't, I just didn't have a vision for myself really, or it's certainly not a very mature one. And I did some traveling when I was 25. I'd gone to, I had an undergrad degree. I got a degree in advertising. I was very suspicious of consumerism, but I thought 
and I need a job. And so I'll try to maybe marketing will, will be a good fit for me. And I started there. I did some traveling and I, I decided on my travels that I wanted to work for social impact. And I didn't have that language. I probably said I wanted to work for the nonprofit sector and I still didn't really understand what that meant. I just knew that I felt I had something to offer, but that I wouldn't be very satisfied if I helped large company X increase their profit margin, that I wouldn't look back 30 years later and be really proud of myself. I needed to find some meaning. And I thought that by working in the nonprofit sector, I would. And so I went and I took a job as an administrative assistant, making $29,000 a year, which was less than I had been making before, just to break into the non, like some, some people break into Hollywood. I was trying to break into the nonprofit sector with this low level entry admin job. And it was an organization called the Canadian Center for Philanthropy. And that job I stayed at for four or five years gave me two things. One is an understanding of the nonprofit sector. It's like what, okay, it's a sector and here's the legal constitution and it's charities and like, where, do, how many are there? What do they serve? So I started to wrap my head around how social change happened at the time in the nonprofit sector. And the other thing was like really my first professional experience. I learned how to manage budgets and design programs and work with other people. And as it happened, I went to a opening event of something called the Center for Social Innovation in Toronto, which was opening a 5,000 square foot shared workspace. The word co-working didn't exist yet. There was no idea of social, like social enterprise was just starting to be a thing, but no idea of incubators or communities for these types of, of enterprises and organizations. And they had a job opening and I knew the husband of the boss. And I was just like, I just advocated very strongly for my, I just, I was relentless in my pursuit of this job. And I just said, like, you need to hire me. I really think we can do something with this. And I was hired and became the number two. And I just really caught a very lucky wave because five years later, everyone was talking about co-working spaces and what was a 5,000 square foot space became 20,000 square feet. And then a hundred thousand square feet we went from a dozen members to over 200 members. And suddenly we were this organization at the center of the social change ecosystem in Toronto, hosting events and running programs. And in that role, I really learned, I had the chance to be a kind of an operations lead, a strategy lead, a partnerships lead. I just got a ton of exposure to many different dimensions of the business because we were two people when we started and let's say 25 people when I left. It just gave me the opportunity to touch a lot of different parts of the organization. And but really most fundamentally, it taught me about community engagement. How do you design for communities? And how do you get really creative about your facilitation in a meaningful way to form authentic relationships? And I learned a lot from Tonya Sermon, who was and still is the CEO and executive director of that organization. Fast forwarding very quickly, we had an opportunity to open in New York City. I got tapped as the guy to lead that effort. I landed here, basically, I have two suitcases and tears streaming down my face in Manhattan saying like, how the hell am I going to pull this thing off? Total like one flight had a total panic attack being like, why on earth? What gives me, I cannot do this. And then I met people and we started and put one foot in front of the other and assembled the right team. And just really, I took every ounce of community instinct I had and tried to resist the New York push for polish and pizzazz and like showiness. And just said, could we bring something really authentic here? And it was just a really a great ride and had a great run there, retired, took some time and then arrived at the Aspen Institute. So I'm happy to leave it there or unpack any of those elements, but that's a cursory journey. And sorry, just to touch on your point, Marcos, I never had a plan. I never knew and still don't know where I want to be 10 years from now. And I continue to be amazed 
at people who do and somewhat suspicious sometimes, but I think that may be my own ego and defense mechanisms talking, but I, it just, it never fits with me. And so when people ask, what should I do with my life? What should I do? My answer is that's just too big a question. It's what do you want to do next? And the next thing should be whatever sounds really interesting and compelling to you at this moment. And trust that if you do that, the path will emerge as you walk it. Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. I think one of the things that you said, the one word that is most prominent is exposure. And you're putting you put yourself in places and situations to really expose yourself to what you may like or what you may not like. And I think I am a little suspicious like you of people that have their lives planned out because it could be blinders and it doesn't allow them to really absorb any experiences that they may need or want or are looking for. So being able to put yourself in those situations and really you got to taste a lot of things and you got to experience a lot of things. And that really gives you some guidance on, oh, I really like that or I didn't like that of, of a clarity of a path moving forward. What are we going to yeah. ask you? I think I that you're also speaking to a level of receptivity that is both could be personal as well as organizational. The capacity to being receptive to what it is that arises for you, where your interest goes is really important. And similarly, a business might have an idea for how they're going to be affecting social change 50 years from now, yet the needs of the moment are changing constantly. And is it always necessarily the best thing to set a vision that's so grandiose and so distant versus really keeping an ear to the ground and bringing the, the multitude of decision makers to the table and designing for the present moment. So I appreciate yeah. what you're saying on, on multiple levels. Yeah. And I think, look, it's a tension we all have to navigate. It's, do I live for today or do I plan for the future? It's probably not at the extreme edge of either. If you hold those things in tension, you have to do both. And I think it's the same with your career. I, I think you need to hopefully be taking on jobs and opportunities that to both of your points open you up to expose you to new opportunities that will help you to sharpen your own understanding of what you like and enjoy or what will be next or be meaningful for you and position you to do that work by increasing your kind of skills and experience in a particular domain. But it is definitely an exceedingly dynamic and volatile time right now. No, nobody in your audience needs to be told that. And the kind of chess moves towards a 10 and 20 year future, I think it's a murkier picture than it ever has been. And I think being agile and responsive, putting yourself in a place that is meaningful and appropriate right now, at least has always struck me as the best advice or option, again, with the faith and confidence that the next step and opportunity will emerge and you can just keep walking through those steps. And it's not about getting to some ultimate goal. It's about learning and achieving impact throughout the journey. Yeah. And getting to back to what you shared earlier, probably of some of the things that you teach at the Aspen Institute and some of the programming, taking that time for reflection and understanding your values and what's important to you. What I see that self-knowledge does is it's a decision framework where you're going through life and going through work and you have these experiences and it really allows you to make better decisions with confidence because you know what's important to you and how you can and where you can put your skills in a particular situation or context or work environment to make a greater impact. Yeah, agreed. It's interesting because oftentimes people think of purpose as being tied into that 50-year vision, that long-term, I know what I've always wanted to do. And I think that what you're also opening the door to is a different conception of purpose. And the idea that purpose isn't necessarily something that, that you have to have a plan for, yet it's more so how you live in harmony with your values, how you enact those values. Does that resonate for you or how do you define purpose, Eli? So just like I think I've always struggled 
around or felt intimidated with people who knew exactly what they wanted to accomplish. I think I've always had the same issue around purpose where somebody would be like, here's my purpose statement, or this is my purpose. I've always thought, I don't know, like, I feel like I have a very purposeful life. I certainly have a meaningful life and I'm all in on social impact. However, other people interpret that for me, knowing that I want my career to be oriented around making the world a better place is very fundamental, but I still really struggle. Do I have purpose? And in fact, we always have as part of the Aspen Institute, we tell campfire stories around the moments when our purpose became clear to us or revealed to us in some way. And I'm always terrified that somebody's going to point at me and say, now you tell your purpose story because I don't know that I've got one. I don't really have a good one. And I don't know that I can really define it. So I think, again, another thing that's important for purpose, and, and there are some who can and do, and it becomes like a totem or a North Star for them. And I think, again, all credit to that. But on the other side, just for those who maybe feel like they're not sure about it, I think one thing that's important is just acknowledging, and I'm sure everyone agrees that, you know, purposes can evolve, that I don't know that it is about finding your one true, like going deep enough that you can find why you were meant to be here on this earth. And then you grab it and you will be so satisfied because you're in pursuit of that purpose for the rest of your life. And maybe it's like that for some people, but I think for most of us, it's a process of discovery and rediscovery, a process of being very close to it and then being distant from it and then finding it in different places. And I think that I prefer for myself accommodating that reality and embracing that reality rather than trying to singularly define it for myself. It's too elusive for me to do so. I'm very comfortable with a model of recognizing that it has to be discovered and redefined and embraced and grasped and pursued at different times and different points of my life and my career. Yeah, I think it evolves just as humans do. We're not static entities and we're always gaining new experiences and possibly discovering new passions. Something that you're excited about when you're 15 is probably different when you're 25 and when you're 35 and so on. And I agree that it's not some end destination where you feel like you find some place or some word or some phrase and it's all puppy dogs and ice cream and rainbows at that point, you there are going to be things that change, including the world changing pretty rapidly. And I think you do have to adapt to, to it and think about living much more purposefully rather than finding some singular purpose. Yeah. And look, it, it does merit reflection. If you, again, I suspect most people listening here are linked to their purpose in some way. I do think whether it's writing, reading, poetry, nature, I think part of having a good life, of having a life that you will find satisfying and rewarding. And so I don't think that you just, obviously you weren't saying this, but I want to make sure my comments aren't like, and therefore purpose should be thrown out the window. I think it really matters. I think it's just embracing its, its somewhat ambiguous or changing evolutionary kind of nature. And, but it, and look, this is also starts of new years. These are good times for reflections on purpose as well as we start to plan and think about our lives in the years ahead. So going back to the type of work that you really enjoyed, which is as you were at CSI, I really saw you as an executive director, but also just very programmatically minded. I remember when we were collaborating or I saw you doing something programmatically, that's when you really lit up and you were really excited. And what are the other things in addition to that that you really enjoy about your current work at the Aspen Institute? So I, I do love the program design elements. So I love when somebody says, here's our objective, and then here is the group, and we've got four days and we're going to be in this location. I just love designing a program that gets us to that end goal that is a very whole self-oriented kind of program. And that really considers the social and personal elements, as well as any kind of didactic or instructional elements. 
I also love the in the moment facilitation. So I really love to be required to think very quickly on my feet to be in a situation that is emergent and a product of the group and the group's dynamics and its environment and have to be a steward of that space and allow people to engage meaningfully and find their own purpose conversation value in, in either in, in the contents or in the experience of it with others. As I get older, this is relatively recent for me, I'm taking more pleasure in management than I used to. I would be, I think historically, I was not a particularly, I was in like a nice manager, but not a good manager at really developing people. And I still think I'm just average at that. But this idea of helping others become more effective at what they do and giving them the right amount of support, which is not too much or too little, I think that's like a practice that I'm really trying to develop and gets me excited. And then similarly, thinking about the operations of a team. So what does it, how do we get people into the right roles and responsibilities and organize ourselves in ways that are efficient and effective and get people working at their best? So there's a little bit more attention and interest to the mechanics of what's happening behind the scenes or under the surface that I think didn't hold as much interest for me, or I didn't have enough maturity and perspective to do well. And I'm still really trying to develop and get better at. The people who you manage will be lucky for this pursuit and also just for everything that you're doing. I have to say, Eli, too, one thing that's come through really clearly in this conversation for me is like the relational component of social impact. The, whether it's the coordinated systemic efforts or whether it's the interpersonal, inter, let's work together, take a bet on me, let's even share a co-working space, that the relational component of social impact is so important. And it's something that we talk about at Be Social Change primarily through the lens of networking. And you mentioned in your career journey that, you know, part of how you got from one place to the next was also knowing people and building those relationships. And I'm wondering if you can just spend a little bit of time talking about the importance of networking either in your own career or as you've seen it for others? On the networking for myself, I was just very fortunate to work at the Center for Social Innovation because we became a hub where other people came to. So it's very different to be in an office. If you're in an office, typical building on the fourth floor, it's like the only people you see are the people that you work with. If you're in a co-working space, you're in this incredible place where you're meeting hundreds of other people or dozens of other people in that shared co-working space. If you run a co-working space, you're meeting all of those people and you're coordinating with other co-working spaces and you've got all of these events. So like I just had, was very lucky to have kind of a, a profile that came with my job that allowed me to be out there a lot. And I would say my networks have shrunk to about 5% of what they were when I was back in the Center for Social Innovation. Now I'm like a guy who works in an office on the fourth floor of a building somewhere and I'm not as out there as much. The But I will say... I don't always use the term networking, but the term that I love is social capital. And if you ask me to define my purpose, or when I have tried to define my purpose, the word social capital figure pretty largely in them. Because I discovered, I'll share a very quick anecdote. People used to ask at the Center for Social, like, tell me a story of two organizations that like didn't know each other, and then they got together and they created something phenomenal. And there was like one story of that. What was really happening was every day, each of these organizations was doing their own thing, but they were asking for each other for help. And over time, what I began to realize was enhancing social capital was probably the most socially impactful thing I could do because people have agency. They know what they want and what they need to do, but they don't necessarily have access to the resources they need in order to accomplish it. 
So rather than try to move them or coordinate them in some manner, if I can just surround them with many other things and people, they'll figure out which of those they, they need to advance. So I think the network, I think social capital is fundamental. It's the only thing I believe, I, it's the only thing I know to be true about social impact, which is that if I can, in my mission, connect more people who are driven towards social change to more other people who may be useful to them on that journey, that is a pretty tremendous accomplishment. And that, that is a more certain thing than me bringing them budget expertise or board development expertise or resume building expertise, because surrounding them with deeper pools of social capital, I think will allow their agency to take them as far as they can go. And my neck hurts from so much nodding. I have to say, <laughs> I really appreciate what you're saying here, Eli. Thank you. Thanks for that excellent reframe on networking that I think is gonna serve so many people. I'm just curious, as you think about your day or weekly work schedule, are there any habits, are there routines, are there tools that you use to really, one, feel effective, but also get back to what you were saying and the work that you do with fellows at the Aspen Institute of just have an opportunity to reflect and to be? I am the, I forget like the good analogy. I don't know if it's the shoemaker's children, but it's definitely the like, I help other people to really find that space, but I don't have fabulous practices for myself. I was lucky enough to have a, a kind of fellowship-like experience myself this fall, and that opened up some kind of new channels and ways of thinking. And since that time, I have three or four mornings a week woken up about 45 minutes early. I tend to be the guy who like just sleeps as late as possible and then gets the day going with a bang. But now waking up about 45 minutes early to do some stretching and exercising and some breathing. So that's a practice that I've been adopting. I do some writing from time to time. And the most recent pickup is, I don't know, it's those adult coloring books, things where I'm a linear engineer brain guy who's not like freeform poetry. So if you give me a coloring book and some markers, I seem to find some satisfaction in that. I think it can obviously be any range of anything that works for you, but I think finding moments for yourself will help you to serve the world more effectively. I and the other that. thing I just want to say on that point is uh, people really worry. It's like I was on a diet or I was meditating or exercising and I did like 20 day and then I, and then like I lost three days. I think just like with meditating, where you have to bring your attention back to your breathing, even though you're constantly distracting, I think if you fall off that horse, you just got to forgive yourself. It's impossible to keep any of these regimes up every day, all the time. Let it go. It's okay. Bring the practice back and just try to keep returning to it rather than getting caught on a kind of belief that it only works if you do it every day, or it only works if you do it in these certain patterns. Do it when you can with what you have and where you're able and take satisfaction in that. Yes. I heard somebody say that for New Year's goals, stop trying to try, stop trying to incorporate consistency. It's not about doing it every right. single day. It's about doing it with the effort that you can bring to it every day. So I really appreciate what you're saying. All right. Our last question for you here, Eli, is thinking back to the very beginning of your career, what's one piece of advice you wish you had gotten then that might have saved you time, energy, or effort? My honest answer, which may sound trite, is a little bit of, I'm so satisfied with my journey, including the mistakes that I'm happy not to have gotten any advice that would have protected me even from the downs. I think the, among my weaknesses is I'm not very high in emotional intelligence. I'm not a very empathetic person. Like I am in some ways, but in other ways, like I'm with the world, but not with individuals. And I didn't always have a good handle on 
teammates and employees, like motivations and thinking about what's going on behind that's bringing them. And I, I, and as a result, I think I could have worked more effectively with others and engaged others and increased their satisfaction if I had been encouraged or if I could have given myself the advice to really try to unpack the, the motivations and priorities of other people. I, I think I boxed that out. It's like I was on this deep, would have enhanced adventure journey. My Obviously, I engaged a ton with other people and did so very effectively, more, let alone but I don't think I recognize the degree to which greater empathy for, more for other range people. Of people. And so I think that probably would be the thing that I continue to work on. And had I gotten started earlier, might be a little further along than I am now. It's a great piece of advice. And man, Eli, there are so many gems here. I have a completely full notebook, <laughs> notebook page just from everything that you've shared. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for bringing your wisdom and your experience to this podcast. Yeah, thank you so much, Eli. It was great to catch up. I learned a number of things I never heard before, which is really fun. And you're doing some really amazing work at the Aspen Institute. And even what you pointed out, just of that last piece of career advice that we should have gone earlier, you're now able to really learn and try to apply and develop that skill set when the team and the work that you're doing at the Aspen Institute, which is amazing. Yeah. And as parting advice, let me say what I didn't talk about. And obviously there's lots we didn't talk about, but my volunteering life and board participation has also been very satisfying dimensions of my social impact journey. And so remember your day job is not the only way in which to express your commitment to people, the earth in mission, whatever it may be. There are lots of other ways to do so large and small. So really think about kind of the full totality, even as a consumer, as a citizen, as a community member, lots of ways for this to manifest. So I'm grateful for the invitation, delighted to share a bit of my experience and hope, hope it helps somebody in some small way. What a great conversation with Eli. I love hearing his different perspectives when it comes to social impact, entrepreneurship, and how he's working with some of the most innovative social impact leaders to drive change within large organizations. I also love that he talks about presencing and emotional intelligence and some of the softer aspects of social impact that are absolutely necessary but don't get talked about enough. He's also just such a great and real person and professional. I love catching up with him. I'm so glad we got to do this as well. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you liked the episode, help us grow the impact of this podcast by taking a quick second to leave us a five-star rating and review telling us what you liked. And please share the podcast with anyone you think could benefit from this type of career and business advice. Word of mouth is the number one way we can grow the podcast and the impact we have on people's careers. And don't forget to visit besocialchange.com for free social impact career resources through our newsletter. See you next week.